our Advent series at GRC this year has been called The Gifts of Christmas. Tomorrow morning, anticipation will turn to delight for lots of little ones and a good handful of big ones. Tonight through New Year's Eve, there'll be feasts, parties, extra treats, vacation indulgences. And that's why for the last four Sundays of Advent, we've been trying to remind ourselves that as good and as enjoyable as those gifts are, there's a greater, most valuable, longest lasting gift that Jesus has come to give to us in his birth and ultimately in his death and resurrection. Jesus didn't come to give us an excuse to throw parties, to decorate our houses, to spend extravagantly on gifts to one another. Jesus came, as the angel told Joseph in a dream, to save his people from their sins. You know, we, we make Christmas out to be so many things that it is not. I remember in eighth grade, uh, I was invited to take the privilege of the lead male role in the Christmas nativity play in my school, and I was the first boy in the history of our school to crush my mother's heart by denying that privilege. And so Kevin Buck, instead, walked alongside Mary, sitting astride a live donkey, petrified. <laughs> Mary was petrified, not the donkey. And uh, walking down the center of the aisle of the sanctuary up to the rest of the nativity scene with children in dress and various garb. But the Bible doesn't tell us that there was a donkey. The center of the excitement that Christmas Eve service. And historians tell us that it's far more likely that Mary walked even in her pregnant state. And you know those three guys dressed in royal garb that you position on the outer circle of your nativity scene, right? Joseph, Jesus, and Mary on the inside, maybe a lamb right next to him. The magi weren't kings, and we don't know how many there were, let alone three wise men. And they didn't show up for quite a while until after Jesus was born. And you, the manger, the, the centerpiece of furniture, it might not have been in a stable. It very well could have been inside the household where the family would have kept their household animals. If these familiar characters and features of the nativity scene are not really at the heart of Christmas then the question we have to ask ourselves is, what is? There are three things we know are at the heart of Christmas because God directed them. And we'll look briefly at three thoughts. Scandal, shame, and shock. Scandal. Joseph and Mary were only pledged to be married. They were engaged. And next thing you know, Mary's got a bump. And you can imagine her talking with her parents about this crazy story about an angel. No, Dad, trust me, Joseph hasn't even kissed me yet. And I know, I'm due in December. Uh, and, and the Holy Spirit came down, and I don't know what to say. How would you react to that kind of craziness? In today's world, a teenage pregnancy or a shotgun wedding isn't all that scandalous. But in Mary's time, she would have endured a lifetime of social stigma. Everyone would always remember the scandal of her pregnancy. And the son born to her would have to live in that shadow. 
shame. How did Joseph himself react to this story? He had every reason to wonder which boy in the village was responsible for getting her knocked up. Most guys would have called off the wedding, and some would have publicly humiliated her. So the angel went to Joseph with this particular instruction and assured him, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Joseph, by faith, accepted the shame that would come upon this new family because no one would ever believe the true story. And he committed to still loving Mary and being the best earthly father that he could to this Jesus. The angel's point that Mary conceived by the Holy Spirit is not just a sort of a secondary thing that's thrown into the story that we scratch our heads about. It's essential at the heart of the Christmas narrative because someone can die for another person. And someone can even die for several people, right? If you're in a tragic accident and you've signed your organ donation card, one person's death might save several other people's lives. One hero could uh, jump in the way of the speeding car or in the line of the hail of bullets to save other people from the rampage. A leader of um, a nation or a side in some kind of huge conflict could offer himself up as a prisoner to the enemy in the hopes that many, many innocent people might go free. One person can die for another. One person might even die for several. But how could one man pay the penalty of sin on behalf of all believing people, past, present, and future? Only if his sacrifice was perfect of divine origin. Jesus was fully man, born of Mary, a teenage girl. And Jesus was fully God, conceived in Mary, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Lastly, shock. Part of the shock here is that this was all God's plan. No one would ever have drawn up the narrative of salvation history this way. But the angel tells Mary in Luke chapter 1, your son will be called the Son of God. And uh, the angel tells Joseph in Matthew chapter 1, he will save his people from their sins. How? even more shocking. Shock that the baby born in Bethlehem was destined to die in Jerusalem. The English poet John Donne was also a preacher, and he wrote this, his birth and his death were but one continual act, and his Christmas day and his Good Friday are but the evening and the morning of one and the same day. That might strike you as unnecessarily morbid, because we're celebrating. This is a birth why, why do we have to sing, what child is this, and include a stanza that says, nails, spear shall pierce him through? Isn't that like showing up at the hospital? Uh, your best friend has just had her first baby, and the first thing out of your mouth is you're thinking out loud, you speak this to her, I wonder if he'll die an early death or live to a ripe old age. Your friend says, hospital security, get this person out. I don't need to hear this. This is a day of celebration. This is a day of joy. But this is the shocking reality that the full glory of Christmas can only be tasted, glimpsed, experienced 
when we look at the end of this Savior child's life. John Shea is sort of a modern-day spiritual storyteller, and he shares this thought. It's long, but it's up here for you. Follow along. Perhaps the language of death at Christmas is not as strange as it first seems. Born to die translates into accompanied by love. Its ultimate purpose is to show the non-abandoning presence of God. Although this language is meant to surprise and stagger us, it's not completely foreign to our experience. Our love, perhaps because it is informed by divine love, also holds on to people, especially at Christmas. We remember the dead. And although we know it will cause us more pain than pleasure, we cultivate their presence. We refuse to allow death any sovereignty. The birth of Christ proclaims that love rules. As you prepare to gather with friends and family, tonight maybe, tomorrow night, for some of you, an empty chair is going to be especially painful. For the first time, Christmas has that kind of effect, does it not? Maybe that empty chair over the years leads you to good, a good cry, a, a sense of the fond memories that you cherish more and more closely as the years go by. Christmas has that kind of effect. Our youngest one, uh, ever since Thanksgiving, has been saying more often, I miss Pa. Christmas has that kind of effect. But God has not abandoned you. God has not abandoned us. He knows the full reality of the joy of a son's birth. And God also knows the crushing loss of premature and tragic and unjust death the death of his one and only son. Here's how the baby born to, G, uh, to Mary fulfilled his name, Jesus, which means the Lord saves. But Jesus did three things uniquely. He lived a fully human life just as we do. No different in his humanity from ours, with, but, but with one exception, a major exception. Jesus never sinned. He lived life perfectly, righteously, unlike any other human being on the face of this earth. And secondly, despite his innocence, despite his righteousness, before the, the Holy Father, the judge of all the earth, Jesus paid the bill of divine justice that each of our sinful hearts deserves. He went to our place on the cross. He served as our substitute sacrifice, and his sacrifice was perfect because he was not only God, not only man, but also God, not only born of Mary, but also conceived by the Holy Spirit. And thirdly, and most importantly, this baby who grew to be a man, a perfect one, who went to his death, also rose in victory over death, destroying its condemning power once and for all. Friends, do you believe these things? Do you place your trust in this reality at, at its core is the definition of Christmas glory? If you do, then the greatest gift of all is yours.
to receive, to take, to call your own, to cherish for eternity. Resurrection turns tragedy that a Christmas baby would become the Good Friday week a victim. Resurrection turns that tragedy into joyful celebration, into confident hope that one day all things will be made new because a child has been born, a son has been given, and on this holy and divine night, we praise his holy name, Christ the Lord. Would you bow with me? Lord, we marvel at Christmas glory. Work in us, Lord, even in the enjoyment of feasting and presence and revelry. Work in us by your Holy Spirit that we might not fall for the deception that that is Christmas glory. It's good, but there's something far richer. It's beautiful, but there's something that surpasses it all. And that something is a someone who is Jesus. Not just born an innocent little baby, but who died an innocent victim on the cross. Show us the substance of Christmas. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.